And we continue to look at what it means to be a, <clears throat> excuse me, a growing church in a groaning world. We're in Acts uh, chapter 24 through actually chapter 27, a very lengthy passage. Uh, we obviously won't read the whole thing or cover it in very much detail at all. And as you turn there, we'll, probably, we'll read from Acts chapter 26, the beginning of, Acts, of chapter 26. But as you're turning there, I have a confession to make. Uh, these later chapters in the book of Acts uh, have never been very interesting to me. Full disclosure, as we look at this passage, um, I love the book of Acts up to about chapter 21. And then here from chapter 22 to kind of the end, there just becomes this, this section where Paul has to just defend himself over and over and over and over again. In chapter 22, he's defending himself against the mob in the temple area. In chapter 23, he begins to defend himself against the Sanhedrin, the council of elders and priests there in Jerusalem. Then he defends himself in chapter 24 in front of Governor Felix. In chapter 25, in front of his replacement, Governor Festus. And then in chapter 26, before King Agrippa. And then he goes sailing across the Mediterranean, has challenges and, and, and trials there, shipwreck, all that. And then chapter 28, he gets to Rome and he defends himself against and in front of more Jewish folks who don't understand the message. And, and I, maybe part of what I, uh, has, I struggle with in this is the repetition. Paul shares his story multiple times. Maybe it's the lengthy speeches. Maybe it's, and really what I think it is, is just the frustration as you watch again and again and again people acting contrary to what is right and good. People refusing to listen. Uh, just, it's like, to me, like watching a temper tantrum over and over and over as people just stuff their ears, you know, the fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 I'm not listening. I'm going to keep saying the same thing over and over again. And so I come to this passage... And all of that resistance, frustration, blindness, and I, and I realize with all Scripture, right, there is something really good here. And you know, we might never, most likely will never individually face anything approaching what Paul has faced and what we see in these chapters, defending himself before court after court, so to speak. But I can relate to the frustration and even as I think about this in the book of Acts, I need what Paul has. And every one of us does. Of how do we deal with frustrating circumstances? How do we deal with a broken world? How do we deal with people who won't listen? How do we deal with all of these factors in our lives? Let's see, as we come to this portion of God's law, here in Acts chapter 24 through 27, let's see what the Lord would teach us about living in a broken world, a groaning world even, and how we can grow. 
immaturity. Would you read with me? We're going to skip through a couple sections in Acts chapter 26, starting at verse 1 of Acts 26. This is God's Word. Acts 26, verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation, and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? And Paul then talks about his background a little bit and his history in being a Pharisee and going out with the permission of the leaders and pick it up again in verse 15. He has, he's relating the interaction he had with Jesus we've seen several times now. And the Lord, and I said, Paul says, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, verse 15, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up and stand on your feet for this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, Paul continues, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the regions of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand this day, testifying both the small and great, sharing nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray as we look at this big passage, as we look at a passage that's focused on just resistance and obstacles, injustice and blindness, would you speak to our hearts and lead us, equip us for our own lives in this day and whatever we have to face this week. Would you meet us here, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So here in 
in Acts chapter 22 through 26, now, Paul is not technically on trial and, and in court in every chapter. Obviously, he's before the mob in chapter 22. And he's uh, just speaking to Agrippa kind of outside of court. He's already appeared in what we just read. He's already appealed to Caesar, and he's going to head to Rome. But he just has this opportunity to speak to King Agrippa. It won't change his circumstances. It's not a trial. Uh, so he's not, he's not in court, technically, all throughout this section. But it's, it's interesting that, in fact, the two main words for defending yourself against accusations and charges in court, those two words occur seven times in these chapters. In each chapter, they appear, except for chapter 23, when Paul gets cut short in speaking with the Sanhedrin. So here, in this section, Paul is defending himself. He's making a case for what is right and true against the accusations and charges and allegations of others. One of the most interesting things, and we'll talk about this, Lord willing, in a few weeks when we wrap this series up, one of the most interesting things is that the book of Acts doesn't actually tell us the outcome of all of these trials. Acts chapter 28 leaves Paul in Rome for two years, and we never hear how his appeal before Caesar went. So the, the focus is, is not actually some sort of courtroom drama. You know, it's, it's something more, and that's the question to wrestle with, whether you're really excited about these passages or, like me, you get a little frustrated. What, what is going on here? What's the message? I think as I look through it, what comes through very clearly is just this. Like, how do, how do we interact with a world that once the gospel changes our lives and changes our relationships to God, how do we then interact with a world that feels like we've now betrayed them and switched teams? Because we, in a sense, kind of have. How do we deal with a world that now that we are right with God and have no more guilt and shame and fear, how do we deal with a world that now targets us with accusations and rejection and abuse? It's at least frustrating and a lot of times, oppressive, even deadly. The gospel changes our loyalties. And the world doesn't know what to do with that. And so we need to know what we do with it. How do we handle it? How do we gain perspective on that? In a sense, the picture I have is, you know, we're, we're, we're swimming upstream or we're, we're, we're fighting through the crowd that's leaving the stadium, you know, and, and we're like, no, it's, we need to go this way and everything is against us. And it's not just human beings and relationships, right? It's, it's the world itself, disasters and, and disease. It's, it's all around us, this resistance. And on top of that, potential accusations and 
brokennesses and things of that nature. So, let's explore that. How do we live in this world, in this groaning world? How do we grow? What, how do we mature in the way we handle it? Well, let's look at that from this perspective of, of Paul's interactions with these leaders, these Roman officials in particular. Uh, let's flip back to Acts chapter 24. As Paul appears before Governor Felix. Uh, Governor Felix is the ruler uh, of, of that region of Palestine, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. And he, he hears this case from... This is the first kind of formal official Roman trial, uh, beginning of Acts 24. After five days, the high priest came down to Caesarea Philippi, the, the govern, governor's capital, as opposed to Jerusalem, the capital of the nation of Israel. Caesarea Philippi was the capital of the regional government of, of, under Rome. And they came down, and there was an attorney named Tertullus and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. Paul had been summoned. Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, basically flattery for a couple of verses here. And then look at verse 5 of chapter 24. We have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. Just think about that picture for a minute. We found him a real pest. The, the Greek word behind that is essentially a plague. We would say a virus. Right? We found him to be a virus. You, you might use the metaphor of a cancer. We found this Paul to be a cancer. We found him to be a plague, which we're all very familiar with now, are we not? That he spreads his ideas and infects and harms everyone around. And what he does, they're saying, is cause dissension. This is the most serious charge they bring, and it's really the only one that would have any potential traction with Rome. Because they didn't really care about Jewish disputes intramurally among different sects of the Jews, Pharisees and Sadducees, or here now Christians, and, or followers of the way, and others, right? They, that, that was a, a local religious thing. The, the, the Jewish religion was acceptable to Rome, within certain parameters. So they weren't going to care about that. But the most serious charge is this one of dissension. The word there is actually the same as that had Barabbas in prison. He was charged with dissension and murder. That's why he was in jail when they asked for him to be released and not Jesus. It's the same word that describes what the town clerk in Ephesus was afraid of as the silversmith started that riot back in Acts chapter 19. 
He didn't want Rome to come crashing down and, and, and take away their power and their freedom because they were rioting. Rome liked peace. And when you had an expansive empire, you just couldn't afford to have uprisings here and there. So you would crush them mercilessly. That's the charge here. He's, he's doing, Paul is doing something to stir up trouble and cause riots. He's a ringleader of this sect, and he even attempted to desecrate the temple. And the charges, from an objective point of view, are, are almost completely false. Paul says you, you can't prove these. You didn't find me causing a riot. You, you can't prove these other charges. I do follow the way, but I, my hope is in a God who will raise the righteous or the just and the wicked or the unjust. I, I believe in the same God. And Felix's response here is implicitly affirming Paul's innocence. You know, he doesn't actually declare a verdict. He stalls. He says in verse 22, we'll wait for Commander Lysias to come down and then, then we'll decide the case. And that doesn't appear to have happened, obviously. And then he gave Paul some freedom, which he probably wouldn't do if he was worried about someone being actively causing dissension and riots. And in verse 26, at the same time it says, he, Felix, was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. And so he used to send for him quite often to converse with him. You know, in other words, Felix doesn't believe Paul is guilty, but he's not willing to release him. He's not willing to declare a verdict. He's hoping for a bribe and for some money. And it also says in verse 27, Felix, after two years had passed, was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul imprisoned. He kind of knew he should let him go, but he wanted to gain some political influence and left Paul in prison. Felix, from history we know, was one of the most cruel of leaders, crushing rebellions and any kind of dissension and was just not a very good leader and most likely got recalled to Rome because of that because he kept mismanaging the relationships with the locals and so he got recalled to Rome and in his parting gesture he's kind of maybe laying the groundwork for when he comes back maybe he can rebuild those relationships and keep some influence so Paul Paul's in prison not because he's guilty, but because Felix is greedy. Paul stays in prison not because he's done anything wrong, but because Felix wants some influence politically. In other words, Paul's not guilty. Now Felix is removed, and so let's look at his replacement, Festus, in chapter 25. He takes over for Felix. The, the Romans regional government government capital, whatever you want to call it, is Caesarea Philippi, but Festus heads up to Jerusalem, the, the local capital for the nation of Israel, and it, you know, theoretically he's building relationships there, he's finding out the scoop, meeting with the leaders in Jerusalem, and they ask him, the, the leaders ask 
Festus, say, hey, this guy's in prison, this Paul guy. Would you bring him up here to Jerusalem and try him here? Reading the text, it seems like Festus is like not willing to make a concession off the bat. He wants to get a political read. And so he says, you guys can come down to me. I'm heading down there soon, and eight days later or so, he heads down to Caesarea Philippi. And what they wanted, it says, look at verse 25, of chapter 25, verse 3. They wanted a concession against Paul that he might have him, that is, Festus might have him, Paul, brought to Jerusalem at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. You know, they weren't really interested in justice. They wanted Paul disposed with. They wanted him out of the way. So they're trying to make that happen. That doesn't happen with a political favor. Festus says, come on down. So they go down and they talk and they bring, verse 7 says, many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Chapter 25, verse 7. And Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense and no sin, no wrong, either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, verse 9, chapter 25, wishing to do the Jews a favor, this is the same word that appears at the end of chapter 24 that Felix wanted to do to gain favor. Verse 9, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? So Festus is saying, I, I want to get the most I can out of this politically. I, reading between the lines there, it seems like he believes Paul is innocent, so he could gain some political favor by just having the trial in another location. Let's just go up to Jerusalem and have the trial. Theoretically, Paul, you'll be released, you know, and I'll get some favor because these guys get what they want. That, Paul knows last time, uh, you know, they were trying to kill him. He's had free access to friends while in prison, so the rumors are, are abounding, I'm sure, and people letting him know. If, if you go up to Jerusalem, they're going to ambush and try to kill you. So Paul is clearly not guilty. Providentially at this time, King Agrippa, who is uh, the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who was king of Judea when Jesus was born, uh, he is the son of Herod Agrippa, who was reigning earlier in Acts chapter 12 and, and was proud and died, struck by God. This is, this is his son. Many Herods, many Agrippas, this is very confusing. But this Herod is king over the northern regions, and sometime during this period, his, his rulership, his local kingliness, was expanded by Emperor Nero. And there's a relationship there between the local leaders and the Roman officials and the way they divide the government up. We don't have time to get into that. But clearly, Agrippa comes uh, to meet this new governor, and get to know him or whatever, and it happens that that's when Paul is in there, and Festus describes the situation with this prisoner who has now appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen at any time in the court process. You could say, I appeal to Caesar. 
And more often than not, they would say, well, then you're going to go to Caesar. And you travel to Rome, and you're tried there. So Paul does that. And the, the issue, though, is that Festus doesn't know what to tell Caesar. Festus doesn't know, hey, this guy is on trial for something. I think he's innocent. I don't know. You know like, I, I, Festus is in a, in, a, in a pickle, we would say, right? Festus is stuck. And he says, hey, Agrippa, would you listen to this guy? I don't know what to do with him. And so Paul then spends most of chapter 26 talking to Agrippa. But if you look at the way Festus describes the situation in chapter 25, verse 19, he's telling Agrippa, they, they had some points of disagreement, the, the Jewish leaders and Paul, about their own religion, verse 19 of 25, and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial, but when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. And Agrippa says, yeah, I want to hear him. And afterwards, if you look at chapter 26, they listen to him. Chapter 26, verse 30, Paul speaks, and the king, Agrippa, stood up, chapter 26, verse 30, and the governor and Bernice, that is uh, Agrippa's wife, Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So all of this, right, all of these accusations and charges and appearances and injustices and everything, that, and, and the conclusion is of these kind of objective authorities, Paul's done nothing worthy of death. And so that leads to that question, that why is he on trial? What made the Jewish leaders so interested in getting rid of Paul that they are not only trying to try him in the courts but willing to ambush and kill him and plotting to destroy him. Paul's perspective was, as we read in verse 6 of chapter 26, I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I'm being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Paul tied the persecution and the accusations and the frustrations and the threats and the violence to the hope that he had in a God who raises the dead. And a God who is going to resurrect both the righteous or just and the wicked or unjust. Both those who are right with God and those who are not right with God. They will see their maker face to face. This is Paul's confidence and his hope as he battles through these frustrations. This gospel that has washed him clean. Paul says throughout these occasions that he tries to keep a clear conscience. He got slapped in chapter 23 by the Sanhedrin for saying he tried to keep a clear conscience. He repeatedly says, 
I believe in this resurrection, and so I try to keep a clear conscience. Can you imagine what it must have been like for this man who was trying to serve God sincerely to be confronted by Jesus and this light shining and saying, you're persecuting me. The one who offers you hope and life. The one who is risen from the dead and paid the penalty for sin and brokenness. The one who will accept you no matter your sins. The one who has reigned victoriously and conquered death and hell and Satan and who has now given you hope. Who has the power to save you. Who has the love to forgive you and accept you. And who has suffered for your sins to clear the record for you. Can you imagine Paul's experience of that? Wanting to keep a clear conscience to be broken by that and say, I have been wrong. I have killed people. Has your sin come anywhere near that? I think part of what's going on here in all of this and what, what Paul, what gets him through all of this, what sustains him through these injustices and brokennesses and physical afflictions and shipwrecks and all of these things, what sustains him, brothers and sisters, is a great sense of his sin and brokenness that would otherwise weigh him down and to have that met and taken care of by God himself, that he would know this forgiveness because he knows that God has kept his promise. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, God said to Satan, what? You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to strike you on the head. That you'll be dealt with, Satan. And the whole story of the Bible is playing that out. That the whole sacrificial system says, this is, this is how you're right with God, by offering a sacrifice. But ultimately, the blood of bulls and goats won't cleanse you. That you need something more. Someone more. You need your debt to be paid for. You, you need your uncleanness and shame to be cleared up and washed away. You need your fear and selfishness to be broken. And that's what God has come to do. That Jesus has come for that very reason. And Paul, by the light of the Gospel, sees that. And in fact, says that's his mission. Verse 18 of chapter 26. Jesus tells him to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. From the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Brothers and sisters, this is what I need. As, as, as we go through this life, and it's like one broken thing after another. One frustration after another. There's joys and, and all. But the reality of a fallen world is that they won't last. And, 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 and the more I want this world to be perfect and to be the source of my happiness and the fulfillment of all my desires, the more I put my confidence in those things, the more miserable I get. It is only, it is only when the light of the gospel shines forth and shows me that the end result of this life is going to be death. That the end result of all my good works is going to be dust. In fact, my body will return to dust. From dust I was made, and from dust to dust I will return. But there will come a resurrection. 
And in Jesus, if my confidence and faith is in Him, that I know that He is already taking care of the debt, that I can meet my Maker unafraid, that He has broken the power, He's taken my guilt, He's accepted me as His own Son through Jesus, not through any work of my own. And so as we deal with these struggles, even with death, this perspective of rising above it comes. It's interesting, you know, I have that picture of, of, in my mind of, of salmon, you know, swimming upstream, right? They, they swim against the current during the mating season. You know, how do they do that? They swim through the water, and you've ever watched, you've ever seen these videos, right? They, they're swimming, and they, you know, they, they, they hop up out of the water. Sometimes a bear will come and snatch them, right? They pop up out of the water. They're using the very resistance that's coming at them to fuel their rising above it and moving forward. God has structured this world and our hearts before Him that all of these brokennesses and frustrations are meant not to beat us down in this life, but to cause us to rise above and seek a hope beyond them. To put our confidence not in our own flesh, not in our own relationships, not in the world or our money or our job or our marriage or our children or our parents or the weather or anything else, our sports teams, our accomplishments, our achievements, any of those things. The, the frustrations in this life are all geared at just that one thing to get us to rise above and say, wow, in the midst of all of this, God has a better plan for me. And it will come about, even if this world kills me, because Jesus has risen from the dead. As He said He would. Because He has shined the light of the Gospel into my heart, and I now see. Because He has brought my cold, dead heart to life and taken the stony heart and given me a heart of flesh. Because His Spirit is at work in me. All of these things working together, brothers and sisters, in the midst of these frustrations, that we would rise above them. That's not easy. It's easy to say it right now. But it's good. And it's satisfying. And as we enter into the struggles you have this week, think about them beyond. Think about those struggles as they come at you, as the waves crash against you. Maybe the picture is you're on one of those uh, body boards or something and you just go into the surf and what happens as the waves try to crush you is you skim up above it and soar through the air. And in this life, yeah, you'll crash down again. You'll hit the water. You'll have some joy. But ultimately, brothers and sisters, one of those waves is going to take you to glory. And every time you catch air, it's Jesus that you're experiencing. It is the love of a God who has plans for you will never fail. Who has given you this life and wants you to soar. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you meet us here in the midst of our brokenness, our struggles, our trials, pandemics, plagues, accusations and injustices, mild frustrations, and significant illnesses as they come at us, Lord, 
Would you give us the grace, open our eyes to see that they are meant to lift us up to you. Lord, do that we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.